If you've got your Bibles, open them up, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I really do hope that uh, this kicks off for you guys a week of Thanksgiving, not just a prelude to a day of Thanksgiving. Um, because I know you pretty well, and we have had our socks blessed off this year. Amen. We really have been blessed, and I want to stop and say, and say thank you to God before we get launched. Father, really, all glory to you. All glory, all praise to you for what you've done in our lives. And we have sung that to you just now, but we want you to hear it from our hearts in a different way. Thank you for every small blessing, every huge blessing this last year. Uh, and we want to make this a week in which we... Open our eyes and open our hearts to everything around us. So, Spirit, would you help us do that? Not just us, but would you please be with the Reformed Episcopal Church as, as they, too, are asking for you to open their eyes uh, to the things in their life, to be wowed and awed again uh, by all the blessings we have. We don't want to miss them. And it's so easy in the busyness of, of the season to do that. And so, please, help us. As we gather with families, as we gather um, all around the state, some even all around the country, and uh, give you thanks. We start now, and we pray that you um, receive this all week long. For we ask it in Jesus' name, and everyone said. In the 1950s, the United States entered what we now know as a space race with Russia. They were the first to put a man in orbit. We wanted to be the first to put a man on the moon. Well, there are all kinds of interesting and unique challenges that took place behind the scenes of actually getting a man from Earth onto the moon. And one of them, it's a small detail, was that the scientists were trying to figure out how in the world that they could sync up their watches with those of the astronauts. And because of the extreme temperatures and extreme pressures of space and launch and all that went with that, NASA enlisted several Swiss watchmakers, Rolex, Cartier, and Omega all had their own contest and submitted watches that could be tested and one of them was selected. And only one watch has ever been worn on an astronaut's wrist on the moon. It was the Omega Speedmaster. Now, you could own one of those little bad boys for about $3,000 today if you wanted to. Or you could go find you a border town and get one for about 50 bucks. Now, I wanted to test and see how street savvy uh, that this church is and to see if you could select the replica or the real Omega watch. You ready? Take some time and look at it and see if you can just select it. And I promise you one of them is different from the other, and one is a real and one is a replica. All right, you ready to vote? Vote with your hands. Here we go. Those who think the watch on the left is the real Omega, raise your hand now. Okay, those on the right who think that that watch is the real Omega, raise your hand now. Okay, I can see that I can probably put my kids through college, my grandkids, on some of you I can sell fake watches to. At least half the auditorium. The actual watch is the one on the right. That is the true Omega watch. Now, some of you are just lucky as all get out that you chose that. And others of you have an eye for maybe that which is really authentic. And sometimes that's not very easy to spot. 
We just wrapped up a series called Lord of the Screens, and one of the foundation verses that came out of that series, or actually was a part of the foundation of that series, was this. It came out of a letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. We read one largely in that series that went to the church in Rome, but this morning we want to focus on one that went to the church at Corinth. And again, if I didn't say this earlier, 1 Corinthians 6 is where we're going to be heading to in a few moments. Now, the letter that Paul writes to this church is highly encouraging. And it's also highly challenging, highly encouraging because he tells them again, reminds them of the grace of Jesus Christ that is greater than any of the sins they may be struggling with. But the letter is also highly challenging because the church at Corinth was choosing to blend in with the culture around them as opposed to standing out. They weren't making a difference. And so in chapter 5, Paul has some pretty strong words for those who are involved in sexual immorality. And he also has some strong words for those who are Christians who are taking their brothers and sisters to court for personal gain. At the end of chapter 5, Paul issues a strong challenge saying, here's what's needed in order to be a more authentic reflection of your Lord in this world. Here's what he writes. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church you are sinning. God is going to judge those on the outside, but as Scripture says, you must remove the evil person from among you. Now, for most American churches, I think that's pretty much an easy passage for us to understand, but it is an extremely difficult passage for us to apply. So, what's Paul getting at here? Essentially, he's saying there is an authentic follower of Christ. And that authentic follower of Christ need never judge a non-Christian because we have zero expectations for them. We have zero standards for the way that they're going to act. However, the minute a Christian becomes a Christian, Paul says, we then have it as a responsibility to judge and discern our actions among one another as a family of Christ. So if I see you cussing a riff out at a sporting event, The Lord says, I'm supposed to speak with you about that. Or if you're doing some weed after the football game, or if you're having an affair in your spouse, God charges me to lovingly intervene in that life, maybe not at that moment, but sometime in the future to say, sister, brother, we can do better than this. We have to do better than this for Christ because we are his ordained, his God-given bodies in the world to reflect His grace, His love, His life, His character. Because if we don't, they will never really believe that He was raised and they will never really believe for them that it matters. Why? Not just because Scripture says we have to. But as followers of Christ, as authentic followers of Christ, we are to be the most authentic expression of God's love Humanly possible. Now hear me clearly, not perfect, but as authentic and genuinely as we can be. Now here's the first challenge of doing that in this world that we live in. We live in a world that no longer has a clear definition of what love is. God's word reveals through trustworthy witnesses saying love is the perfect balance between truth and grace. And God is the ultimate demonstrator of this. God confronts me with this truth, 
which exposes in my life destructive and sinful behavior patterns, but he loves me enough to let me know that they're there. But he doesn't stop there. He then applies grace to those destructive, sinful behavior patterns, and he forgives me. And he doesn't stop there. He then asks me to do the same with you. And for you to do the same with me. That some way, somehow, when my actions hurt you, or some way, somehow, when your actions hurt me, and when some way, somehow, that they, they bring difficulty and frustration in our relationships, that we extend truth about what's going on and also grace. That's love. Now, the second challenge to this being something that is a constant in this culture of ours is that we live in a culture that's moved from atheism to syncretism. For decades when I was in school, remember, the atheistic movie was powerful in this country. They worked night and day, it seemed, to remove any notion or concept of God from the culture, specifically in schools. Well, now the pendulum has shifted back a little bit, and, and we're trying to bring God back into the culture, except this time it's not the God that's revealed in Scripture. It's a God that we're making up on our own. People have decided that they can define him and his character any way they want, which means there's no longer now any absolute truth primarily in this country. It's not. If you haven't noticed that, if you've been curious, if we're close to that, we're there. We're there. Tongue-in-cheek, I can say the sky is no longer blue. That's my truth. Tongue-in-cheek, I can say two plus two doesn't equal four anymore. That's my truth. I don't know how many times I've had myself engaged in a conversation or an email or a text with people who believe that all religious roads lead to God. That's their truth. Well, that's silly. That's like saying all roads in Texas lead to Bass Pro. Now, I would love that. But they don't. Christians believe that the world that we live in starts and ends with God. Amen? That's what we believe. But we further believe that he's revealed himself through his word to us so that we can both know him and be with him, be in a relationship with him. And so we've made that part of our mission here is to lead ordinary people into that extraordinary type of relationship with that living God. Now, we know that logically everything's got a beginning point. From that watch that we saw on the screen to this world that we're walking around in. We know that had to have some kind of a beginning point. And so we as believers in Christ start there. We may differ about how this world was made, but we don't differ over the who. Again, amen? We know he did it, and we give him all the glory for it. Now, when we decide that we make a better understander of truth than he does things get crazy pretty quick ultimately the dangers of being pressed into the world's mode of relativism when we sink our beliefs with the world's standards instead of with God's standards starts to bring about the same devastation in the church as we're seeing out in the world we get to determine the truth and all of a sudden we begin to find out that we're not so good at that and history has proved it time and time again. Not just world history, but our family histories have, haven't they? When syncretism becomes the way of life for people, when your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, it begins to lead us down a road 
that wasn't that long ago that was pretty, pretty, was pretty, pretty, was very, very filled with darkness. Remember a guy by the name of Hitler? You remember this face. Long before this guy picks a fight with Poland, long before this guy lights a fuse called World War II, he spends an entire decade brainwashing an entire generation of German youth. He tries to convince them that truth is relative. And once you can convince the people that truth is relative, what follows next almost naturally is that morality is relative. Right and wrong are relative. And once you convince people that morality is relative, Hitler could make the case Germans are superior to Jews. So superior that we really don't need the Jews anymore. Now Hitler said, that's my truth. And if you have different truth, I have tanks. And I have soldiers. You can have your truth, but this is my truth. And they almost eliminated the Jewish people forever. Ask this man, Viktor Frankl. He was a prominent Australian Austrian psychologist. He was well-educated. He was well-researched. And he was held in very high esteem by his people in the community prior to World War II. But he was a Jew. That was his big crime. He was a Jew. World War II starts and he's ripped out of his life. And he is placed behind walls like a dog in a concentration camp we know as Auschwitz. Now, he's one of the very few people who survived that Holocaust. And he writes a famous book called Man's Search for Meaning. Some of you have read that. And in that book, he describes what happened to him and the mindset he had to adopt almost immediately in the first few days that he entered that concentration camp. He writes, they stripped me naked. Pause. Who has the right to strip a man naked who's not committed any crime? He's not hurt a single person in the world. He's just a Jew. Who has the right to do that? I'll tell you who has the right to do that. Someone who's decided that they have their own truth. And they're making it. He says, they stripped me naked. They took everything from me. My wedding ring, my watch. And as I stood there naked, all of a sudden I realized that at that moment they could take everything from me. My wife, my job, my family, my possessions. But they couldn't take away my freedom to choose how to respond. And so I chose. Victor Frankl said the people that survived Auschwitz emotionally and physically said they did so because they had a fixed reference point that took them outside the camp. He says, despite all the terrible and horrible things that were happening to us, we did our best to keep our attention and our focus and our gaze beyond a God who seemed absent from that camp. Now, what's that meaning for us as followers of Christ? Our reference point is always God. Always. Always beyond any and every camp we find ourselves in. And sometimes we find ourselves in camps we don't think God's in. And so our reference point always has to be on Him. Always. See, C.S. Lewis said, You will never know that a line is crooked until you have a straight line to compare it to. Friends, concentration camps like the one that's on the screen there and all other forms of evil, we know are wrong because we have the straight line to compare it to. We have a sacrificially loving, good-natured God we can compare all of those ideas to. And so anytime that we see one of those concentration camps now, we can together say as a group of, that's wrong. 
doesn't have to be any debate. We know because of the loving, sacrificial God that we serve, that's wrong. But when you begin to develop your own truth, it's amazing how that can all of a sudden become right. Paul's not battling genocide in Corinth, but he's battling a front that's not far from it. He's battling a mindset in the Corinthian culture that says there is no standard to govern truth anymore. And so he confronts that, and here's where he begins to make his case. 1 Corinthians 6.12, he says, you say. Now notice he's distancing himself from the mindset of the culture that's crept into the church, because it's being read in churches, remember. You say, I'm allowed to do anything. But not everything is good for you. Now, historically, we don't know if that was a line from a popular song. We don't know if that was a line from a popular poem. We just know that the prevailing opinion in Corinth is we can do whatever we want. And so Paul takes that catchphrase out of the vernacular of the day, and he hijacks it to build a very valid point, and here it is. Even if something is permissible, it might not be beneficial. Even if something's permissible, it might not be beneficial. So smoke it and drink it and sleep with it and post a picture of it on the net. Some will say you can do whatever you want. And you know what? You can. There's no law against it. Most people aren't going to stop you from doing it. But the question that Paul's asking and he's asked me to ask you this morning is just this. Just because it's popular and it won't get you arrested... Does that really mean it's good for you? Who gets to decide? Paul goes on to say, even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. That's why I love Beth Moore's line. I can, but I won't. Next slide, guys. I can, but I won't. She says, I can think like the rest of the world. I can talk like the rest of the world. I can act like the rest of the world, but I don't want to. <laughs> because I don't want to end up where the rest of the world's ending up. And if I'm in Christ, God has empowered me, she says, to act differently. And it is a better way to live. Famous American writer by the name of Flannery O'Connor says this, Know the truth, and the truth will make you odd. That's all right. You be odd for God. Students, can I talk to you for just a moment? I know a lot of our students have left because of the holidays or out of school starting tomorrow. But for those of you that are left, I'd like to say this. You're living in a time when there seems to be more pressure on your lives to believe this relativism thing than ever before. The devices we've been talking about in the series The Lord of the Screens have made available to you a world that we can't shield from you anymore. And so there's pressures on your life to conform and to fit into this society more than ever before. And I just want to say that when you decide to take your faith on yourself, not your mama, not your daddy, not your grandmas, but when you make that faith your own and you say, you know what, I'm drawing a line in the sand. And I am going to behave like Christ would have me behave in the middle school and the high school. And when you choose not to smoke weed, and when you choose not to sleep around, 
And when you choose not to drink until you're of age and can make that decision, when you choose to do that, I promise you, you will have friends who will say to you, to your face some, but mostly around your back and then also on the social networks, that you're weird. And I want to be an adult in your life that says before you, along with these other family members here, no, you're not weird, you're wise. And every time you make that wise decision, we are going to support you in it and respect you for it, and our God is going to honor you and bless you for it. Amen? Adults, that little device is following you around in your pocket. And a world is available to you now like it's never been before that we really can't even keep you from, as if we could really. And so I just want to say on behalf of God that when you decide to take that faith out of this building here, out of these walls here, and take it into your businesses especially, and you make a decision, I am not going to cut corners there with my product. I am not going to cheat my clients. There are going to be even partners maybe that say, you're going to cost us thousands of dollars if we don't do X, Y, Z. And you say, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. Can, but I won't. They're going to say, you're going to miss that on this much money? Yes, you're weird. And what we want to say as a Christian family is, no, you're wise. And we respect you for it, and we will support you as much as we can for it. But even if we can't, our God will honor you and bless you because of it every time. Some way, somehow, he will bless you because he loves you. That's just what God does. Some of you are going to tell your friends, no, I'm sorry I can't hang out tonight. I've got to invest some hours in the morning to, to bless some kids in a children's ministry we have at our church because I want them to have a better life than I did. And some folks are going to say, that's weird and we're saying, no, that's wise. And some of you are going to say, well, I, no, I can't come over to the game tonight because I've got the life group coming over and I just want to help some folks belong who really don't feel like they belong. And some people are going to think that's weird and we just want to say, no, that's wise. And we respect you for it and we will support you in it and we will do our best to remind you God will always honor and bless you for it every single time. Paul continues his snowballing argument by saying, again, you say, remember he's distancing himself from the culture, food was made for the stomach and stomach for the food. That's a little bit of an odd line, but I think you kind of get the gist of it. He's talking about appetites here. Just because it's good and it's available doesn't necessarily mean it's for you. The society says, hey, if it's good for me, it's good for me. Don't bother me. For three weeks, we've looked at some little devices we can carry around in our pockets. And I hope that you saw that we were talking about a whole lot more than screens. Paul is speaking to anything that tries to become the ultimate thing in your life. And he says, don't let that happen. Jesus will try to influence you and nudge you so that you don't, but, but, but beware. Be honest do as much as you can to be honest about where you are with that stuff. Be proactive. Be intentional about it. And use that stuff to be a blessing, never to curse. Because when we use, allow anything in our lives that was a good something to become the ultimate thing in our lives, devastation happens. 
Next picture. Here's a great Dane that lives in Portland, Oregon. I think he's kind of cute. His family loves him. The kids love him. They think he's the absolute bomb. But over a few days, the family noticed he wasn't acting like himself. And so they took him to the vet, and they took some x-rays and said he's eaten something he shouldn't have. They took him to surgery, and here's what they pulled out. Forty-three socks. <laughs> now, I'm going to surmise that this is a household full of a lot of boys, and probably dad does the laundry. How do you miss 43 socks? <laughs> but it does go to show you some things may be good. Socks are good. But you don't eat socks. <laughs> you just don't. They were intended for wearing, not eating. Even if you have an appetite for them that's real and it's strong, you don't eat socks. Now, that's an easy one for us, right? But one that's a little harder is sex. Friend, there are appetites that you have that are strong and they're available. But if you're not wise about where, when, and how you use them, they will destroy you. Just because you have an appetite for something doesn't mean it's good to act on. Socks is one thing. Sex is different. Sex is an incredible, wonderful gift that God has given humanity. But without guidance and direction with this particular gift, devastation is just right there waiting to happen. I've got some gals here in this room, and I've got some guys here in this room who would love to talk with you if you doubt that. Please don't hear me saying a life lived under the lordship of Jesus means a life that is avoiding things. Part of it. But it is being wise about things. It is giving some intentional thought about some things. So here's the statement I really want you to walk out of here with is, I can, so I will. I can love people, so I will. I can forgive people, so I will. I can pay cash, so I will. I can pray for people, so I will. I can encourage people, so I will try the best that I can. That's the way Jesus lived. And that's the way he's encouraged us to live who call him Lord. We're followers. He's Lord. We mimic him. I can, therefore I will. When I welcome the Holy Spirit into my life as comforter and counselor, he promises to help me do everything God's asked me to do, and I love that about him. And when I do that, it's amazing what happens. My appetites begin to change. They begin to shift away from the things of the flesh, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, towards the things of the Spirit. You need an example? In October 2006, this man, Charlie Roberts, walked into a room it was an Amish room of a schoolhouse in Pennsylvania. He opened fire and he shot ten children, killing five of them, wounding five others, before he turned the gun on himself and he took his own life. Now, I know when we hear those things, especially school shootings, it doesn't matter how recent the last one's been, they still grab us by the throat and say, Really? Has our country... Has our thinking come to this? And the answer is yes. Because truth is relative. 
relative. You got your truth. I got my truth. But come on, Amish people, peace-loving Amish people, their children, what's behind all that? Well, I'll tell you. This man's mind was tainted with disappointment with God. When Charlie and his wife first got married, they became pregnant, and that pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. They went on to have four healthy children, but Charlie always blamed God for the one child that died. And so he thought the way to get even with God was to kill kids. His wife, Marie, was left to raise their four children. So she moved them into her parents' house for fear that the community would seek retribution against her and the kids because of the pain and death her husband had caused. The morning after the shooting, there was a knock at the door, and there were several horse-drawn carriages when Marie opened the door, and they asked if she wouldn't mind coming outside. Something inside her nudged her and said, it'll be okay. Several Amish men had gotten down out of their buggies, and they were standing there, and they said, if we could have just a moment of your time, we'd like to speak to you. Politely, they removed their black hats, and before she could apologize for what her husband had done, one of the men who had two of his daughters shot, one of them died. That man said, ma'am, you don't know us, and we don't know you. But last night I went to bed with my wife and we cried ourselves to sleep over what was taken from us. And when we woke up this morning, I realized I still have my wife. We still have one another. And you woke up and you didn't have anybody. No one to share the grief with. We've just come to say we're sorry. We're here today to ask if we can pay for your husband's funeral. We're here today to let you know that We'll take care of any needs that your children have now or in the future if you have trouble meeting them. They surrounded her with a group hug. And that hug didn't leave for the next couple of weeks because they loved on her like she was their own. And our culture looks at that and they say, that is weird. That is odd. And we say, you're right, it is. But our God is odd. Our God paid a debt we owed and couldn't pay. Our God loved us when we rebelled and took the life of his child on a cross. Our God, time and time again, still extends grace to us when we rebel and dishonor him after having been welcomed into his family. We know a God who said, no, we know a God who lived, I can love these people, and therefore I will. I can forgive these people, therefore I will. And so he asks us to receive that and then to be as authentic about sharing it as possible. Paul, speaking on behalf of a God like that, begins to chase down some very specific appetites that were destroying the Corinthian church. I've got to move quickly here. That if we're not careful in the American church, will be the demise of us. 
Hear the word of the Lord. There's more to sex than more skin on skin, mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as it is physical gift. As written in scripture, the two become one. And since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonelier than ever. The kind of sex like that can never help a person become one. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others, but the, God, the Word of God says. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God-given, God-modeled love. That were made for becoming one with one another. I was doing some reading for our Christmas series and I came across this guy who was sick in love. Just done in over this lady. <laughs> he was looking for a creative way to express his affection for her. And so he went old-fashioned. Every day he would sit down and handwrite two notes. Two, not one, but two. Drop them in the mail, mail them to her. He did this over the course of an entire year. Now, doing the math, I'm, I'm guessing that's right at about 730 handwritten letters. True story. The woman married the mailman who delivered all those notes to her. <laughs> You've heard the old adage, it is easier to fall in love than to stay in love. And there you go. Andy Stanley says it this way, and I love this. To fall in love requires a pulse. To stay in love requires a plan. Any of you who've been married more than five days, amen? Amen. You can fall in love accidentally, but to stay in love requires intentionality. Requires a plan. And those of you who've been married for any length of time, seriously, you understand it. It is a challenge to give someone what they need, not what they deserve. That's okay. I'm a Christian. And because the Holy Spirit lives in me, I can, therefore I will. I will not be rude because love is not rude. I can, therefore I will not keep a record of wrongs. I can, therefore I will hope in all things, believe in all things, endure all things because that is a marriage made by heaven. God's plan has always been and always built just this, that you find a member of the opposite sex and you choose to love them in marriage for the rest of your life. That's his overall plan. And he wants you to be willing to fight, listen to me, fight for that marriage. A Christian couple needed a date, so they snagged an older couple in their life group to keep the kids so they could go out and enjoy each other's company alone. They wrapped it up by doing a little shopping at Walmart. That's what you do. It seemed everybody else in the city was doing the same thing, so Walmart was just a madhouse until the couple took the grocery list and they split it in two and they went to divide and conquer. He went over a couple of rows to get some chips and salsa. Not five minutes after the husband had left, a man approached his wife, who was physically beautiful, I mean really, really attractive, and he said to her, are you married some of the time or all the time? That was his line. Are you married some of the time or all the time? She said, sir, I'm happily married all the time. He left. A couple of minutes later, the husband got back and could see that she was visibly shaken and upset. Couldn't miss it. And he said, what's wrong? She told him. When she finished, he took off his jacket, laid it on the grocery cart and said, I may or may not be back. Clean up on aisle nine. 
Marriage is something you fight for every day. It is easier to fall in love than it is to stay in love. And to stay in love requires a plan. And so God began the world with one. Listen to me. The family institution that God introduced and said he would bless. The first institution that he introduced to the world and said he would bless is the family. His plan for that family goes something like this. A young man and a young woman abstain from sexual behavior until they get married. We call that virginity. They would create a forever covenant with one another and where sex could be enjoyed and God would bless that sex with bringing children into that. We call that a family. And they are to hang on to one another till death do them part, come heaven or hell, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. That's called fidelity. That, my friends, is truth. That's truth. This is the God of the universe who created men and women, and he knows what's best for them. And he lays out in this incredible story of his what that's supposed to look like for a life that's full, for a life that reflects him in this world. But we live in a society who has decided they know the truth and it's theirs. And it's very, very different from that truth. Have you noticed? Here's what happens whenever you replace God's truth with our own truth. I don't have a screen big enough to put the words of devastation that would fill it any more than what I have here. Depression, incest, abuse, suicide, crime, bankruptcy. I could go on and on and on. Those things are what happens when we validate God's truth. When we invalidate that truth with our own truth and say, we know better. We don't. We don't. What happens is chaos and confusion. But here we are. I'm going to wrap up this message with this. We're Christ followers, most of us in here. And if you're here this morning visiting, you're getting a chance to hear us do what the Hebrew writer says. We get together on Sunday mornings, remember why we have reason to be thankful, and then we try to hear how that could be a part of our marriages and our raising of our children, and then we take that out of here. And if you're just putting your foot in the water, this is just us reminding ourselves of some of the truth from God because we are surrounded by truth out there that's not. 10% of the people in this culture have read this book at all. Any part of it. 10%. So they don't know the plan. They don't know the truth. And so that's why now it's more imperative than ever, those of you who are Christian couples, that you live out Christ in your marriage. Because they are watching. And they are being blistered and burned by the fire of their immoral sexual choices everywhere. And they're needing to know, is there a place, some of them, is there a place where this can be fixed once it gets all over them? And we have this to offer them. Truth. Next slide, guys. Next slide. There we go. And grace. Because that's love. And we will love them regardless of where they've been with some of the, their own truth they've lived. We will extend to them the grace wherever they're at. Whatever circumstances they come into our, our grasp and our, our fellowship with. Because God did that with us. He took us right where we are and loved us too much to leave us there. And so we will bring truth and grace together and we will do our best to love them like we've been loved. So husbands, please, 
If you haven't read it in a while, read 1 Corinthians. Wives, please read 1 Corinthians. If you're not quite sure how to give that person that you said till death do us part with what they need, not what they deserve. And if that all fails, just, just find a cross somewhere. And just think about that cross for a minute. Because that thing shouts, here's what you needed, not what you deserved. Now I share any of this with you because I believe with all my heart that authentic truth and authentic grace is exactly what the world needs. Because it is love. And if you want to leave this place and go be loving, then you bring truth. Sometimes it exposes the lies of the evil one and the sins of our lives, but then is met with this incredible grace. I want to love the world like that. I want to be loved like that. Two things. One minute and we're done. Next slide. Will you please just think about what we've said today? Would you, would you take that to maybe an area of your life that's had a lot more control of you than you want it to? There are a lot of good things that become bad things when we become slave to them. Are you in slavery to anything? Would you allow God's truth to shine into that and speak to it? Please know that if you failed him and failed your family and failed others, there's grace. And so that leads us to point number two. Thank him. Thank him. Because there are folks out there walking around with a lie and they have no idea. They have no idea what the truth is. And so they may need to see you live it in your marriage and how you act at school and how you act in your business first. Then you can wrap your arm around them and you can say, there's more. Let me, let me show you. Maybe bring them to your life group. Maybe bring them here. Maybe bring them to one of our brothers, a men's meeting or a ladies meeting or the BSF. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you odd. And that's okay, as long as it's for God. Father in heaven, we ask for you to help us be authentic. It is the hardest thing for us to do. We're just confessing that right here. We would rather people have an impression of us that is so far better than we actually are. Let me realize to some degree that's the way it's going to be till we die because we're constantly trying to get better and to grow into something we're not. But when we, on purpose, allow that image to just stay and people catch us living, not just acting, but living so far from your values and your truth, please, if we can't see it on our own through your word, please send a brother or sister to help us see it when we can't. I know it's hard for them, but please help them to, to come find us and help us do that. We're just going to try to be family here, God, and do this together. We're just going to be one big, odd family. We know there's others trying to do this here in our community. Please help us as we do that. If you brought someone here today who has not taken the plunge yet to say, okay, I'm making him Lord of my life. His truth is my truth. Would you nudge him up here to the front to come talk with me so they could start a brand new life with you today? i got brothers and sisters here today who are just swamped in some of the, the beliefs and the truth of this culture, and it's just sucked the life out of them. Please help them find their way back to me or one of our elders at the back of the front. We're asking you, please, Spirit, right now, open our eyes. Open our eyes. Open the, heart, open the eyes of our hearts so we can be honest about that. Help us be authentic right now about the truth of that. We ask this in Jesus' name and everyone's sin. Let's stand. Let's praise in church.